It is Sunday, October 14th, 2018. I am going to slap down a podcast here between laundry loads. It's starting to cool off here in southern New Mexico. It feels great. Uh, I was walking around the neighborhood, taking a stroll, letting my mind wander about, you know, what, what I might talk about if I were to get around to podcasting today. And, um, I think that the general topic that's been on my mind is this notion of dispelling illusions. I woke up last night, as I have many nights over the past couple of weeks, and I will be sort of chewing on something, uh, trying to solve a problem, um, trying to address an issue. Uh, with you know dogged intensity and then I'll I'll sort of be coming out of sleep and then the utter nonsense of the of the issue or problem that I was chewing on suddenly becomes apparent it'll be uh, you know I'll be thinking about uh, since I work as a school counselor I might be thinking of a particular student and uh, something I forgot to do uh, with regard to this kid's case. And then as I'm coming out of sleep, I'll realize it's no such kid even exists. It was completely illusory. It was, uh, I was chewing on a problem that, that doesn't exist or trying to answer a question that's, you know, nonsensical. And uh, last night it was even more ridiculous because aside from having a, a crazy couple of weeks at work at the school uh, during which you know, it's the usual chaos that happens at this elementary school that I work at. It's in a, you know, a very impoverished neighborhood. There's just so many issues and there were multiple fights and suspensions and uh, just all kinds of things happening um, on a daily basis. And I would come home at the end of the day and of course I wouldn't have all the loose ends tied and I'd have various intentions sort of uh, in floating around in my consciousness or hiding out in my body somewhere. And I find that when I would go to sleep, these intentions would still be there and it would make my sleep restless and it would kind of get into my dreams. And, uh, and so I would, um, you know, often wake up uh, worried about a particular kid or a situation at school. And I'd be working on the problem, trying to figure out what to do about it. And then as I as I wake up, I realize that th- that kid's not a real kid. It was just um, a completely made-up uh, situation or kid, and I was trying to uh, solve a problem that didn't need solving and didn't exist. I've also had uh, a work crew replacing my roof that was damaged by some hail, and that added a little element of mild stress or something on my mind uh, that I've been thinking about. Um, just, you know, worried that they're going to screw something up. And there's been a few a few mishaps. A guy tripped and smashed one of my skylights. And I was concerned uh, just to make sure that they were going to fix that. Um, we also have evaporative coolers on the roof that they had to dismantle. 
and uh, they sort of messed those up and then they tried to reassemble them they weren't working so I've had some of these issues on my mind and last night I actually you know combined these two things and uh, I woke up about two in the morning and the big thing I was concerned about was uh, various kids presumably from my elementary school that were uh, getting into trouble or involved in situations on my roof and uh, as I woke up I you know the ridiculous ridiculousness of it just came to me I mean first of all they were kids that weren't even real kids and the idea that you know I had to run up and down to my roof to uh, take care of this or that kid was an obvious um, you know mashup of various concerns and unresolved intentions I've had floating around but I find it interesting, you know, you wake up and you might be, you know, highly, highly invested in whatever this uh, problem is you're trying to solve or, or an issue that you're wrapped up in, in your dream. And then there's that moment where the illusion just evaporates. It's like looking at a, you know, a coiled up rope and uh, somehow hallucinating that it's a snake and you, you really believe it's a snake and you're you're reacting to it as if it's a snake and then at some point you realize it's just a coiled up rope and then the illusion just completely drops away and uh, so that's been that's been happening to me almost on a nightly basis and um, and also that that theme of, of this dispelling of illusion just it seems to be running through a lot of my experiences over this um, since I recorded the last podcast I've been um, doing uh, Sam Harris's Waking Up course, which is a meditation app. And uh, I've been meditating on and off for a while. I mean, 20 years or more, maybe. But my formal uh, sitting practice comes and goes, and it's mostly been gone as of late. And I like the way Sam Harris talks about meditation and consciousness and he, uh, since he put out this app and I could use it for free, I uh, was just using that as an excuse to get back into sitting meditation. And meditation, at least that style of mindfulness meditation or zazen, is the quintessential practice to uh, get a handle on this um, dispelling of illusions. I mean, you just sit and you're essentially trying to strengthen your ability to uh, pay attention to the present moment and you quickly get pulled out of that by your various habits of thought and um, you get pulled into weird illusory realms especially having to do with thought where you could be attempting to just follow the sensation of your breath or sounds that are appearing in your environment or you know, just trying to basically be present to the the moment-by-moment moment flow of experience. And before you realize what happened, you could be off in a, a totally different reality, thinking about something that happened at work or a conversation that you had or you're going to have. And you're in this almost virtual reality space generated by thought. And the whole practice is, as soon as you catch yourself in that weird realm, you kind of snap out of it and and bring your attention back to the present moment. So it's a it's an interesting practice because you you see how easy it is to 
fall into these illusory uh, realms that are basically generated by your habitual thinking processes. And, um, and yeah, so with, with the meditation and with the, having these dreams, I, I've just been kind of noting all the various aspects of my life where uh, this falling into illusion and, and having it cleared up in a moment of insight or clarity happens. And uh, sometimes it's, you know, maybe it's a stretch as it always is when I'm, when I'm coming up with a theme here, but uh, I've also been um, incredibly fascinated with the concept of identity. Um, in my information silo or bubble or uh, whatever you want to call it, I tend to read a lot of articles that have to do with identity politics and critiquing identity politics. It's just something that I'm, I'm interested in, the whole notion of uh, forming an identity and how that affects how we think and behave and what's you know, what's behind that process of identity formation and should it be something that's actively encouraged uh, and supported and celebrated as it tends to be uh, on the progressive left? Or is it something that should be loosened and, um, you know, eventually abandoned? And I tend to, my bias would be toward the latter. And I think that you know, speaks to my interest in, you know, Buddhist style meditation as well, with, where that seems to be a central process where you're, you become aware of how you're tangled up in various concepts and identified with various aspects, aspects of your experience. And the whole notion is to let go of those and, um, more and more, and, and perhaps even, you know, on deeper and deeper levels until you're, you're no longer identified with anything except, you know, the largest possible or deepest possible identity. Uh, one way of that I used to think about it was popularized by a philosopher named Ken Wilber back in the 70s. Uh, he wrote a book called No Boundary. And I discovered this book when I was living in San Francisco in the early 90s. It was in a used bookstore. And he, he talks about this process of, um, you know, loosening these identities to ever wider, broader identities until you have some sort of supreme identity. So if you just take, you know, in, in the psychological sense, people are often identified with just certain aspects of their psyche and they deny others. So you'll have your sort of self-concept you know, I'm a good, I'm a good guy and I'm, you know, I'm a father or brother or this type of a person. And you sort of disidentify with what we call the shadow, which is just aspects of your psyche that you might not be aware of, or you're uncomfortable with. And one of the early, uh, moves of just growing and development and personal evolution or, you know, spiritual growth is to find that boundary between what's you and not you within your psyche and have that dissolve so that you eventually embrace your shadow and you become a, a whole integrated psyche. And then according to Wilbur, you sort of move toward 
a deeper level of then the, the primary boundary be- between your psyche and your and your body. So you got your sort of that body mind boundary where you identify as, you know, I'm a, a thing behind my eyes. I'm a mind. I'm me, a person, a self, and that you have a body. So that in some sense, the body's not really you. Um, it's, it's a thing that you have. And there's this, this mind body dualism that, um, you know, is a part of all philosophical and psychological traditions. And then another huge stage of spiritual growth or psychological development is to have that boundary dissolve and you have a a sense of integrated mind body where you're just, you are your body. And then, you know, it goes, there's all kinds of other lines, you know, the, the boundary between yourself and the environment and, and, and when, if you look at it, uh, you know, in other senses, uh, senses of the word, say in a more social sense, you could be, you know, somebody who's very identified with being from your hometown and then that loosens up. And instead of just being, you know, from Troy, New York, you're from, you know, you're a New Yorker. And then of course, all those lines always define what the other is, you know, and so other people in other states are in the other camp. But there's that larger identity maybe of being an American that unites people from all states. And if you rest in that larger identity, you tend to have less friction with other people, you know, from other places. And then, of course, nationalism encourages a uh, an entrenchment within that sense of I am an American and other people are in this other camp. And uh, many of us. Uh, the cosmopolitan types like myself, you want, you want to loosen that boundary as well. So you, you come to rest more in a sense of being a world citizen and that identity as being an American loosens up and you're just, you know, you're just a citizen of the world. And the same goes with, you know, gender and so forth. You don't necessarily uh, want to get lost in the illusion of just, you know, being, a male as opposed to a female when there's this larger, wider identity of being a human and racial identities. When you stay so focused on differences, you know, I'm white, I'm black, I'm Jewish, uh, to the point where people outside that group are, are genuinely perceived as other. And these, these characteristics that define these identity groups become reified to the point where, um, you know, you really lose track of the fact that you know, we're all just humans, that sort of thing. So this this issue of identity, um, and especially when it's, uh, you know, as a psychological process that we all, um, you know, that we generate ourselves, that it's up to us to decide what our identity is, and that uh, it could really be anything, and what are what are the implications of that? And of course, in the political realm, we see this um, sort of the progressive left, where identity is celebrated, emphasized, and uh, and also on the right. I mean, of course, you have you know white nationalism and identity politics that drive racism, for instance. And my general sense has always been these things need to be loosened. I mean, it doesn't, uh, there are illusions that are noticed as such when you focus uh, on these broader 
aspects of experience. They just sort of evaporate. And you want to, I, I would think you'd want to encourage that. Encourage always the long, the, the wider identity. And so let's just take the political season. I was taking a walk around the block this morning and I saw uh, political signs in various yards and there was a um, uh, Republican, I forgot his name, Ben Ralston, maybe. And over the top of the this Republican sign, there was this sticker that someone had put on there that said uh, no, and the, the no box was checked, and it said white male Republican. So again, in this sense, uh, you're setting up what I find is a strange dichotomy um, where you're emphasizing, I mean, already there's an implicit illusion there of Republicans and Democrats as if, you know, these are our two choices and you have to pick a team or pick a side. When really that's, it's just a convention that doesn't even need to be there. I mean, the political parties don't really have to exist. We don't, they're not in the constitution. We don't need them to have votes in Congress. Everyone could just vote on issues and, you know, we don't really need the parties, but because they're there, we sort of get hypnotized into this binary. But also this idea that uh, we're going to look at the gender and the race of a candidate and discount them based on that as if, you know, and I'm not saying this Ben Ralston guy is any good, but I mean, surely a, you could have a white male that has amazing ideas and incredible talents for policy making that and whose policy positions would you know lead to equality for all and then you could have a, a woman of color who is a serial killer and you know i mean it's just absurd that you would uh you take the the person's gender and race and use that as a, a basis upon which to to vote and yet we're seeing this all the time and i think it's I think it's a matter of people just getting lost in these illusory categories that exist and maybe have some conventional uses within certain contexts, but then when you lose track of that and it becomes uh, the sense of who you are or the or the the background context that you're not seeing anymore, it's a huge, huge problem. So. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm probably meandering at this point uh, to a ridiculous extreme, but I, I still, I always get nagged. Something, something nags at me when I get into the, these realms of identity politics and people that are, are very, very entrenched in being, you know, Italian American or African American or, um, you know, even the concept of white to me just doesn't even make any sense. People will often say, you know, white people this or that, or um, this is uh, an issue uh, with white people. And then I'm not a fool. I mean, I realize that people see me and they would think that I am a quote unquote white person. I mean, I do have a certain lack of melanin in my in my skin and um, I have ancestry from Europe and so forth. 
the idea that that would be the basis of my identity just seems ridiculous to me. I mean, I just don't look at Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin and some guy in Norway and and say, oh, these are these are people in my group. I have nothing in common with any of those people necessarily. Not any more in common than I might if, if it was just taken a, another characteristic like blue eyes or height. Um, and it, it's certainly you have to acknowledge that in certain historical contexts, there are these physical features that people have based their identities on. And then the this general tribalism that seems to be part of our evolutionary heritage just uh, sort of kicks in. And when you have tribalism combined with power, you can have terrible things. And then perhaps in that context, if you're in a marginalized uh, group of people that's not in that, that whatever that dominant in-group is, you'll feel a sense of um, camaraderie or bonding with others who are not in that group, and maybe you need to, to band together for survival. But again, uh, in that context, that might make sense, but it's just losing track of the context and thinking that these these categories and characteristics are are actually things that define who you are as a person, I think is a is a mistake. So, and I, I really think it's a mistake um, to emphasize that politically, um, which I see on, on both quote unquote sides of the aisle. I see a lot of uh, identity politics on the right and on the left. And I think it's just a, a dangerous thing. And for me, the cure is always to, to, take the focus off those narrow identities and move them to whatever the the next one is in the hierarchy that's a little deeper and a little more broad and to keep the focus and emphasis there because that always uh, dissolves that that line between what is in my group and what's in the other group and it broadens it and it's more inclusive there's more in the uh, in the group that's me when you go that level deeper. So obviously the category American is way more inclusive of Newton than just being a New Yorker. And uh, human is more inclusive to, you know, a, a gender binary or a racial um, balkanization. So anyway, I don't know if this is making any sense, but I, I definitely think that if you meditate a lot and contemplate on these things, uh, sometimes you start to see uh, common themes that are uh, driving a lot of uh, different issues. And um, it's just one of those things. Anytime I see uh, identity, anytime I see um, things that are uh, going off the rails because people's minds are um, have been hypnotized almost to um, focusing on, on, on sort of narrow concerns or uh, small aspects of life or experience to the exclusion of others that we're just going to run into these problems. So uh, what else What else can I ramble about? I don't think I really made a whole lot of sense there, but if you were living in my head, perhaps it would make some sense. Um, what else have I been doing? Currently, I'm recording my voice 
uh, through my little mixing board and it's that's going into GarageBand. I've been trying to embrace GarageBand a little more um, to record, especially music. And I haven't done a whole lot of musical recording. I think since the last time I recorded a podcast, I slapped down a cover of a friend of mine's song and just plugged it in and played it and then was trying to, to tweak the settings. I, maybe I'll attach that to the end of this podcast. I don't think it's a great recording, but... The, the thing that I'm always up against is I've got this old Boss Roland 864 um, digital 8-track recorder that I've been using for just a million years. I mean, I don't know when these things came out, 2004 or something like that. And I'm used to the interface there, and GarageBand is just more confusing to me. And then I, So I, I stick to these old old ways of recording that I know uh, aren't as good just because I don't want to go through the learning curve of learning something new. So I'm, I'm trying slowly but surely to get into um, embracing the, the latest technology here. So right now I'm integrating the two. Sometimes I'll record stuff on GarageBand and then send it back into my old BR-864 and try to you know, to use the familiar settings there. Sometimes I'll record into the Boss Roland and then shoot it over to GarageBand. For a podcast, it's obviously easy. You just push record and that's the end of the story. But So I'm, I'm hoping to uh, get some better uh, musical recordings out there now once I avail myself of the, the wonders of GarageBand, which I know any of you that are into recording are probably laughing because it's just the basic... Uh, crap software that comes with Macs that probably no one uses. I forgot the name of the the flagship musical. There's a Final Cut Pro, or maybe that's for uh, for video. But anyway, it's uh, uh, Pro Tools. I mean, there's so many great recording things out there, and they change every few years. But I just uh, I just can't keep up with it. Um, let's see what else can I say. Uh, some other things that maybe I'll link to in the show notes that have captured my attention over, uh, over the last, um, few weeks. Speaking of politics, uh, somebody on Twitter sent, uh, this little recording of, of George Carlin, um, talking about the importance of critical thinking basically and how, uh, there's a reason why critical thinking is so lacking everywhere in our society today. <clears throat> Let me just uh, see if I can play a little clip of Mr. Carlin, and then I'll I'll discuss it. So let's see. Let's check this out. There's a reason education sucks, and it's the same reason that it will never, ever, ever be fixed. It's never going to get any better. Don't look for it. Be happy with what you got because the owners of this country don't want that. I'm talking about the real owners now. The real owners, the big wealthy businesses that control things and make all the important decisions. Forget the politicians. The politicians are put there to give you the idea that you have freedom of choice. You don't. You have no choice. You have owners. They own you. They own everything. They own all the important land. 
They own and control the corporations. They've long since bought and paid for the Senate, the Congress, the state houses, the city halls. They've got the judges in their back pocket. And they own all the big media companies, so they control just about all of the news and information you get to hear. They got you by the balls. They, they spend billions of dollars every year lobbying, lobbying to get what they want. Well, we know what they want. They want more for themselves and less for everybody else. But I'll tell you what they don't want. They don't want a population of citizens capable of critical thinking. They don't want well-informed, well-educated people capable of critical thinking. They're not interested in that. That doesn't help them. That's against their interests. That's right. So, uh, of course, I'm going to um, immediately try to connect that to what I've been talking about. Um, again, as I was saying, in my own sort of filter bubble, information silo, echo chamber, whatever you want to call it, I'm constantly um, drawn toward these political discussions that seem to be just hopeless quagmires. And it always seems to, to me to be, again, what's driving it is um, people are, are confused. Um, and sometimes, you know, we're going to disagree on things. There's a certain... Uh, how do I want to say it? There's a, a realm of reasonable disagreement that's going to come up on complex issues that maybe it just reflects the limitations of our, our human brains. But for instance, in the, you know, the classic issues that uh, don't seem to, to resolve easily, like abortion, you know, things like that, you can have very reasonable arguments on both sides. And therefore, you've established this sort of realm of reasonable disagreement and then from there, of course, you have to find compromise and, um, and so forth. But these days, and maybe it's always been this way, and it's just, you know, apparent to me now, uh, we can't even get to that ground of reasonable disagreement. It's like this hallowed ground, because to do so would presume that uh, two people that disagreed are both being reasonable and have access to just fundamental skills of critical thinking. I am absolutely not seeing that in the discourse. Um, again, at least as I'm seeing it in my sort of filter bubble and on social media and the, th the discussions that I'm aware of, the discourse just seems to be utterly infected by terrible thinking, terrible ideas. And this is both on the right and left. When I was in my 20s, I was always focused on what, from my point of view, was um, the uh, authoritarian, dogmatic, and, you know, non-rational tendencies that I saw on the right as an example of, you know, I mean, religion and um, sort of moralist uh, points of view, I always felt were, were coming from the right. And uh, I caught on, on this early when I was, I mean, I had to be just seven, eight, nine, ten years old, and I would see my grandparents who were going to church on Sundays and um, how those ideas would, uh, from my perspective, sort of contaminate their thinking. And I just you know, I would hear things and see things that made no sense. And I, I just sort of accepted and maybe thought, you know, old people are just a little bit batty. 
as I got older into my adolescence, I'd have conversations and be drawn to conversations and debates with uh, people on the right, usually religious right. And uh, I just, I would always hit this point where I'd I'd realize that they're just not going to be able to go further in the conversation because they would just hit this like wall of dogma. And the irrationality would be just so apparent. Perhaps, you know, we could have gotten to that, that place of reasonable disagreement, but it would always be like this mind virus would would start to be in the ascendance in their minds. And it wasn't, again, a matter of someone with a different opinion, but you could just see the, the utter breakdown of, of critical thinking. Um, and I still see that uh, as a person, you know, again, I eschew and reject the entire binary of Republican, Democrat, and left and right, because I think it's just an illusory uh, thing that's been put before us. And, and George Carlin is kind of hitting on this, where, you know, both of these parties are utterly corrupt. They're establishing the parameters of the discourse and the, and the false choices that supposedly we have to make. And as long as we buy into that, uh, you know, the, the system's going to stay the same and the, and the structure's going to stay exactly where it is. It's only transcending all of that and stepping outside that whole framework that there's any real hope of, um, of changing the system. So I, I, I can, I totally agree with his general vibe there that, um, we are playing a game, uh, and the rules and parameters have been dictated by those that are, are powerful. And the game is, is utterly rigged. Uh, it's like being trapped in, you know, Las Vegas casino and just continuing to lose and lose and lose. And just at some point you realize you don't have to be doing that. Like you could just walk out and spend your money somewhere else. And so that's, uh, that's the general vibe that I get from Carlin there. And it just sort of fits the theme. And, uh, but anyways, in recent years, I've seen the same inability to, demonstrate just some very basic critical thinking skills on the left. I mean, just with what I mentioned about this, whoever this person was that slapped the uh, no white male Republican sticker on the campaign sign. I mean, that whole way of thinking, I mean, it just, in to my mind, it takes like two minutes of, of thoughtful reflection to understand why that's totally dumb. And, uh, I mean, again, I'd go further and say all identity politics is harmful and should be dropped. And I, I, on that front, I totally acknowledge that there's room for reasonable disagreement. And I'm sure there's plenty of people that could, uh, present good, solid arguments for maintaining some of that. Um, but at least on the sort of the far left these days where, uh, I mean, it just, we're getting into, you know, total absurdity where it comes to, um, some of the, some of the stuff on the far left these days. And I see it even people with people in my social circles that, you know, celebrate the shutting down of say, you know, just talk about the 2016 elections where, when various, uh, Trump rallies were shut down and people would celebrate it. Uh, 
you know, I couldn't even believe that it w- wouldn't occur to these people who were college educated or even, you know, PhD level people to realize that celebrating, you know, the shutting down of your political opponents rallies. So the people that want to hear those people can't get to hear them is utterly, uh, ridiculous and against your own interests because you know someday that's going to be you trying to get to to your candidates rally and it's it's going to be shut down you know and and some of the the stuff on free speech i mean surely you're not a defender of free speech if you're not defending the speech that you don't like or that you disagree with that's the entire point and i think there's a a trend probably, you know, on both sides that, you know, we want to shut down the other team um, and not not really understanding the, the deeper principle that, you know, those in power are going to change and you don't want to establish the precedent that if you have an unpopular point of view or a minority point of view that it can be silenced by people that think they're right. So, I mean, that's just one example I'm not going to go into a, a anti-social justice warrior type of a rant here, but um, I'm just seeing basic critical thinking just being abandoned on in our discourse in general. And it's very disconcerting. And working in an educational system, again, as Carlin sort of points to, I can tell you that there's not a big focus on critical thinking. And... In my mind, it's all there sh- that should be taught. I mean, everything else is just, um, you know, stems from that. If you just teach people how to learn and how to think critically, especially in these this day and age with the internet, the person can just go learn for themselves after that. But we're just skipping right over that. And the question of why that is, is fascinating. And again, I, I agree with Carlin. I don't think it's in it's in people's best interest to have a, you know, well-informed electorate. I don't think it's, you know, given that the percentage of people, even that going back to religion are, you know, are deeply entrenched in these belief systems. You're, you're not going to encourage a question everything attitude in your kids when you know, deep down that if they start to question those things, that that stuff will unravel, uh, very quickly as it did in my case. Um, anyway, uh, again, I ramble. Where, where, where else can I can I go here? I've got a couple of other things from the last couple weeks. Um, let's see here. Again, on the music front, one thing that I've been tracking, I probably mentioned this last time, is uh, one of the bands I've been really, really into over the last few years is Big Thief. And... Um, the the lead songwriter singer her name is Adrian or Adrienne Lenker she's got a solo album called Abyss Kiss and she's been making uh making the rounds in the media and I'll put a few links um up to that there's an interview on NPR's All Songs Considered that gives you gives a great just feel for her for her personality there's she's just got this uh I don't know quasi mystical way about her there's there's no contrivance there she's a very unusual personality she has a i don't know how to describe it sort of a feline quality where 
you just you know you you can't um you can't seem to, to to get a hold of her personality but there's something super endearing and and sensitive and deep and 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 the, it comes across in her songwriting the way she writes songs and she talks about it in this NPR interview and she's just writing and singing for herself because it's taking her somewhere and it's having a an effect on her uh, psyche and spirit that's that's uh, that's deep and that that's healing I believe is the, the term she uses and that's what generates her her songwriting and then as far as what the song is about lyrically and so forth it maybe comes after the fact and I'm very uh, I'm interested in that style of creativity and so she was on um, also on a uh, local radio station promoting the record and she used a 12-string guitar on this uh, WFUV radio performance of a couple songs that I thought really added to the ethereal vibe of some of the songs. So here's uh, here's one of the songs just briefly I'll play called Symbol. And you can hear the, the chiming of this 12-string guitar. I love the, uh, I don't know if it's a, I mean, obviously there's a lot of reverb and effects there that, that add to the ethereal vibe, but that 12 string maybe combined with, with that reverb, it just sounds like there's more than one instrument there. It's pretty, uh, it's pretty awesome. Makes me want to get a 12 string. Although I think with my obsessive nature with tuning, that might not be the best move. It looks like it's difficult to keep those things in tune, but I might explore that. Here's um, one other song from that performance called Cradle. Just play a little bit of that. Yeah. 
Man, if I just could get my my demos to sound like that, if I just had an awesome uh, 12 string guitar and all those cool effects and Adrian Laker's talent, I would be all set. But anyway, absolutely love Adrian Laker and just her whole vibe. Um, all right, maybe uh, I will finish off today's podcast with one other thing that grabbed my attention and uh, it's another thing potentially that uh, ties in with the theme here of um, our frail human minds and psyches and brains getting entrapped in uh, these illusory cul-de-sacs and how to how to break out of them and uh Again, I think for me, self-awareness and uh, meditation and things is, is probably the, the way I'm being distracted because I think I can hear like my wife's cleaning the bathroom next door, um, which is a good thing. But anyway, to get back to this, um, you know, our living in an age of distraction that fills our mind with sort of a nonsense and takes us away from uh, a deeper and fuller awareness of ourselves, the present moment, um, the things that we really need to be doing, especially as we're getting more and more overwhelmed with um, information and and there's an unprecedented amount of things that can pull us away from ourselves. We need to invest more and more in in strengthening our attention spans and our focus in order to uh, just to gain clarity, clarity of thinking and awareness and to dispel some of these these illusions that that I've been uh, obsessed with and talking about. There's a guy I've mentioned on the podcast many times. His name is Tristan Harris. He used to work uh, for Google and he's spearheading a movement um, to change uh, the the uh, ethics of tech companies, and um, I think he be- the company or organization he runs is called the Center for Humane Technology. Uh, there's a very interesting uh, interview on Wired Magazine's website where Tristan Harris has a a dialogue or a conversation with Yuval Noah Harari. And the two are are talking about um, uh, the the title of it is called "How Humans Get Hacked." So it's this notion that, again, fitting in with the George Carlin video, that there are there are forces out there that are have always been there, but now have un, unprecedented unprecedented power that are trying to hack the human organism and the human mind uh, for purposes that are not our own you know, to serve various corporate interests, um, and so forth. And this has to do with, you know, technology and social media and all that. And it was a very, very interesting conversation. I'll, I'll play a little bit and respond to a little of it. I don't want to get in trouble for copyright infringement, but the, this first part here is going to be Yuval Noah Harari, who's written a lot of, uh, um, very successful books, I believe he's a he's a historian, but he's also a best-selling author. 
He's written a book called Sapiens Homo Deus. Um, and uh, he's been making the, the circuit on various podcasts and interview shows and stuff. And so anyway, he's going to he's going to start off with just giving us a little sense of what it means to uh, have uh, our brains and, and selves hacked in this way. Corporations, uh, governments, they're gaining the technology to hack human beings. Maybe the most important fact about living in the 21st century is that we are now hackable animals. Well, explain what it means to hack human being and why what can be done now is different from what could be done a hundred years ago with religion or with a book or mm -hmm. with anything else that influences what we see and changes the way we think about the world. Uh, to hack a human being is to understand what's happening inside you on the level of the body, of the brain, of the mind, so that you can predict what people will do. You can understand how they feel. And you can, of course, once you understand and predict, you can usually also manipulate and control and, and even replace. And of course, it can't be done perfectly. And it was possible to do it to some extent also a century ago. Mm -hmm. But um, the, the difference in, in the level is, is, is significant. The key, I would say that the, the, real, the real key is whether somebody can understand you better than you understand yourself. The algorithms that are trying to hack us, they will never be perfect. There is no such thing as understanding perfectly everything or predicting everything. You don't need perfect. You just need to be better than the average human being. And are we there now? Or are you worried that we're about to get there? So uh, I'll stop it there for now. Um, uh, basically, Harari sort of defers to Tristan Harris here and asks him to speak to whether or not we're there now or not. Uh, certainly both guys agree that if we're not there, we're definitely headed there. Tristan Harris uses the YouTube algorithm as an example of what Harari was talking about there, where, you know, we, we've, any of us that utilize YouTube have probably done this, where, you know, we might say to ourselves, I'm not going to fall into a YouTube rabbit hole. I'm just going to, you know, spend 10 minutes. I'm going to watch this one video. And I know, you know, the game here that uh, there's going to be, uh, an auto-played video that comes up next that's going to be that's going to suck me in and I'm just, I'm not going to fall for that. I'm just going to just going to watch this one video and then you know, we wake up in a trance, you know, 45 minutes later or an hour later having watched four or five different videos and and uh we can't believe that we uh we fell for it again. And Tristan Harris is making the point that it's not uh I mean, of course we can you know, get up and walk away and, sh and show some willpower. But there are uh, essentially supercomputers pointing at our brains, playing chess against our brains. And these supercomputers have the resources of, you know, thousands and thousands of engineers, people that have played these simulated chess games against other human minds, you know, millions of times to find <clears throat> the exact perfect next video for you. And so we think 
that we just have the willpower and we ha- we're the one with the choice in this situation and yet we continually get sucked in and sucked in and uh and this is to uh harari's point that it doesn't take um the algorithm being you know infinitely perfect or much much better than human beings it just has to be a little better than you at knowing your vulnerabilities and i think we're just about there where the the, these algorithms uh know us a little better than ourselves in some respects they know our weaknesses they have access to uh, a lot of research tristan harris himself worked at a i think the stanford persuasion lab or something like that where he you know they learn about techniques to persuade people and to uh, quote-unquote hack the the human brain to realize what are the vulnerabilities and perceptions and tendencies and how to exploit them and when you have you know again uh thousands of uh elitely educated engineers all working on these issues and pointing supercomputers with advanced uh, AIs at your brain, you're essentially in this chess game that you're going to lose. And I really relate to this because I feel like I'm I'm playing this chess game right now, and I'm deluding myself into thinking that uh, that I'm better than I am. And I'm all you know, uh, despite the fact that I'm aware of all these these different forces, I'm feeling like I'm losing the game more and more often. Uh, today, when I went for my beautiful, lovely walk around the neighborhood, I made a, um, a concerted effort not to bring technology. I'm not going to listen to a podcast. I'm not going to bring my phone. I am just going to walk around and let my mind wander. And uh, remembering all the, the many years that I did that to great effect uh, how that fueled my creativity and bolstered my mental health. But these days, more and more, I find it difficult uh, even to go to the bathroom without my phone and to have that downtime because, I, you know, these, these devices are so compelling and the way that the, these, these algorithms and supercomputers that are, are aimed at sort of hijacking my attention and attracting it to, you know, whatever their ends are, which is in today's advertising model is all about really just uh, eyes on screen, um, time on certain platforms so that you're exposed to more and more advertising. That's really the kind of what it's about. And it feels like uh, you're the one making the choice because you're watching this great entertaining thing that you like or this this podcast or even this this video on Wired that's so engaging and this great discussion between these two people. And, and to a certain extent, that's true. But uh, I think more and more we're getting ourselves involved in a losing game. And I think the technology and the algorithms are just going to get more and more powerful into drawing us in and... Uh, depleting us of this most important resource that we we need desperately more and more, and that's you know focused attention. We need we need focused attention to grow as human beings and to uh, 
um, to become self-aware, both to protect ourselves from uh, all these other forces. And again, as Harari brings up, the forces have always been there uh, from religion to any other sort of dogmatic um, indoctrination machine. But now the, the, the tools are so powerful that um, they're going to become harder and harder to resist. And I think they can, they can really lull us into uh, having our attention pulled into worlds and universes that are less and less real and to the exclusion of um, what is real and important. We only need to sort of reflect on um, the typical holiday scene now when everyone's face is buried in their device or iPad or their phone and no one's, uh, no one's talking to each other. Um, so the things that, that, that we think are important to each other, like relationships and connection, those are fraying at the seams because we're all, you know, our, we're getting into these habits and patterns and getting pulled away from that. And again, then going back to Carlin, if you want to have self-aware, well-informed, uh, free-thinking humans that are questioning things, that's a threat to the status quo. So when these tools of technology and indoctrination and are in the hands of entrenched interests, they're going to be used against us to keep us uh, as unaware and as distracted as possible. All this has been said before, but... What can I tell you? This is what's been on my mind today. Um, I'll sign off uh, for the afternoon here. I hope everybody is well out there, and I'll check in with you next time. One, two, three, four. You say you want to fly away.
Settle 